Good morning, Alex and friends. I'm Connie Clementine. Today is Wednesday, July 19th of 2023, and you're listening to Alex's News. Starting off with the weather, Riverside is screaming summer today with a sizzling high of 99.9 degrees and a cooling down at a still warm 75.6 this evening. So keep your water bottles handy. As we move to the headlines, tensions are mounting as Russia intensifies nighttime attacks on Odessa, escalating the conflict in the Russia-Ukraine war. We'll delve into the nuances. In legal news, pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson has been ordered to fork out a staggering $18.8 million in a talc cancer lawsuit. We'll discuss this and their ongoing legal battles. Turning to the business sector, the Tata Group is powering up the British automotive industry with a weighty £4 billion investment in a UK gigafactory. Finally, we'll share the incredible survival story of an Australian sailor and his dog, rescued after being adrift at sea for a significant three months. Stay tuned for all of this and more on Alex's News. We move now to our top story of the day. Russia has reportedly carried out significant nighttime offensives across Ukraine, with a particular emphasis on the southern port city of Odessa. Elias, can you fill us in on the details? Certainly, Connie. Based on reports from the Russian Defense Ministry, these attacks were in retaliation for a supposed Ukrainian strike on the Crimean Bridge. Russia claims to have executed a mass retaliatory strike on military sites in Odessa as well as the nearby city of Mykolaiv. Believed to be constructed at a ship repair plant in Odessa were the naval drones allegedly used in the Crimean Bridge assault. These thus became a primary target, but fuel depots servicing the Ukrainian military were also hit. So these attacks were a reaction to an alleged incident at the Crimean Bridge? Correct. The alleged Crimean Bridge assault reportedly led to the death of a Russian couple causing economic and human distress as several Russian tourists in Crimea fled through Ukraine territory controlled by Russian forces. Dmitry Peskov, a Kremlin spokesperson, affirmed that the strikes were a response to that incident and Russia has held Ukraine accountable from the start. Now we understand there's also controversy surrounding these attacks including claims that grain infrastructure was specifically targeted? Absolutely. The Ukrainian government labeled this a deliberate act of terrorism, alleging that Russia intentionally aimed their missiles at grain storage facilities in Odessa. Missile strikes caused fires to break out at these locations. If these accusations hold water, it would demonstrate a menacing strategy by Russia to compromise Ukraine's food supply, something which could have devastating impacts on millions dependent on Ukrainian food exports. Is there any international response to this new development? There indeed is Connie. The assaults on Odessa have drawn criticism from the international community, with condemnations coming from Ukraine, Moldova, and the United States. The head of the U.S. aid agency is scheduled to visit Odessa to determine the situation and render possible help. Aside from the strikes on Odessa, are there other significant developments in the Russia-Ukraine conflict that we should know about? Yes. Along with the immediate damage, there's an associated strategic and psychological war game at play. 
Russia is reportedly marshalling very powerful forces, numbering over 100,000 troops, 900 tanks, and 550 artillery systems, primarily in the northeastern Kharkiv region. Additionally, there's unease over the recent dispatch of convoys from the Wagner Group, a private military organization associated with Russia, to Belarus. Why is there such concern about this group, the Wagner Group? Good question, Connie. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the founder of Wagner, is something of an enigma. There are claims that he's involved in a variety of activities including espionage, election meddling, and being implicitly linked to Wagner. His current location is a matter of speculation, which only fuels the growing anxiety. This crisis seems to be reshaping Europe's approach to Russia. Indeed, Connie. This conflict is stoking vigorous debates about how to handle Russia. There is a school of thought warning against humiliating President Putin with defeat, whilst others argue that Europe's safety is contingent on Russia's loss. Amidst this, the Russian parliament has authorized a law to expand its military service criteria which might escalate things further. Certainly an evolving situation with severe consequences. Thank you for that update, Elias. My pleasure, Connie. Moving on to story two out of our four-part coverage, we have a significant update on a lawsuit against pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson. Our reporter Chloe has been following this case. Chloe, can you bring us up to speed? Certainly, Connie. A Californian named Emery Hernandez Valadez, who claims he developed mesothelioma, a deadly kind of cancer, from using Johnson & Johnson's baby powder, has been awarded $18.8 million in damages. This result is from a trial that lasted six weeks, marking the first time in almost two years that J&J &J has been taken to court over allegations relating to its talc-based products. And what was J&J's position in all of this? Johnson & Johnson has vehemently denied the allegations, Connie, stating that its talc-based baby powder is safe and does not cause cancer. The company's vice president of litigation, Eric Haas, argues that there's no evidence linking Valadez's cancer to asbestos or proving that he was exposed to the talc. The company is planning to appeal the verdict. How might this verdict impact similar cases? Well, Connie, it's interesting you mention that. At present, J&J &J is attempting to settle thousands of similar cases through a proposed $8.9 billion settlement in U.S. bankruptcy court. A subsidiary of J&J &J known as LTL Management has filed for bankruptcy and is trying to resolve over 38,000 talc-related lawsuits and prevent new cases from emerging. Chloe, can we expect Mr. Valadez to receive his awarded damages soon? It may take a while, Connie. A bankruptcy court order, related to LTL Management's filing, has frozen most litigation against J&J's talc, meaning that the money awarded to Valadez cannot be collected in the immediate future. It's worth mentioning another lawsuit that J&J &J lost, where it was ordered to pay $107 million. That's a separate case, right, Chloe? Yes, Connie. In that separate case, the victim, a janitor named Joel H., was exposed to asbestos through a product sold by Union Carbide Corp., not via J&J's baby powder. What about these other lawsuits J&J &J has filed where they're going after doctors? That's true, Connie. J&J &J has initiated legal action against four doctors who published studies linking talc-based personal care products to cancer. They claim these studies are inaccurate. 
One particular lawsuit is aimed at three researchers, urging them to retract a study suggesting that asbestos-contaminated consumer talc products could lead to mesothelioma. Given all these allegations and lawsuits, has the company made any changes to its talc-based product lineup? That's another important point, Connie. Due to the growing number of lawsuits and the ensuing scrutiny over its talc products, J&J has actually discontinued the sale of their talc-based baby powder, though it still affirms that their product is safe. So it seems the claims and their implications aren't just limited to the courtroom. They're impacting the company's business decisions as well. Exactly, Connie. The outcome of these legal battles and the ongoing debate concerning the safety of talc products will likely shape the future of Johnson & Johnson's reputation and itinerary. This is indeed a very complex and ongoing situation. Thank you, Chloe, for shedding light on this critical issue. My pleasure, Connie. We'll continue to monitor the situation. We turn now to an exciting development in the automotive sector. India's industrial conglomerate, the Tata Group, has just revealed plans for a significant investment in the UK. Ethan, our specialist correspondent for the automotive industry, is here to talk us through it. Ethan, this is quite a big new venture for Tata, right? Indeed, Connie. The Tata Group has announced an investment of over £4 billion in a new gigafactory in the UK. This is one of the largest investments ever in the UK's automotive industry. That is a staggering amount. So what exactly is a gigafactory? Good question, Connie. For our listeners, a gigafactory is a term originally coined by Elon Musk to describe a high-capacity factory, one that produces batteries as a primary product. In this case, Tata's planned gigafactory in Somerset is primarily intended to produce electric car batteries with a whopping capacity of 40 gigawatt-hours. By 2030, they aim for this factory to provide nearly half of the battery production needed in the UK supporting the country's move towards green vehicles. That certainly sounds impressive. You mentioned earlier that this factory is going to produce electric vehicle batteries. What's the significance of this? Well, Connie, the electric vehicle market is the future of transportation. Powerful batteries are at the heart of these vehicles and need to be produced close to where the cars are manufactured. Tata's Gigafactory will be perfectly positioned to supply to Jaguar Land Rover's factories in the Midlands. Tata owns JLR, so this move is well aligned with their transition to electric vehicles. I can see how that's a strategic move for Tata and JLR. What could it mean for jobs in the region? This investment is expected to create thousands of jobs. Besides direct employment, there will also be jobs created in the wider supply chain. It's definitely a significant boost for Somerset and for the UK car industry as a whole. And what's the timeline for this Gigafactory? They are planning to start production in 2026. And once it's up and running, it's projected to deliver 40 gigawatt hours of batteries each year, enough to power hundreds of thousands of electric cars. That's a big leap for the UK's battery manufacturing capacity. Are there any related factors or peculiarities to this story, Ethan? Yes, Connie. This announcement comes at a pivotal moment for the UK automotive industry. You may remember British Volt, a startup also aiming to build a gigafactory, but unfortunately, it fell through. So, the Tata Group's investment injects some much-needed confidence into the UK car industry. And the move has caught the attention of the Prime Minister too, hasn't it? Absolutely. Rishi Sunak praised the move, seeing it as a demonstration of the ongoing strength of the UK's car manufacturing industry. Overall, Ethan, 
What does this mean for the future of car manufacturing in the UK? Connie, the investment shows a strong commitment of Tata Group to electric mobility, which enhances the stature of the UK in the global automotive industry. It's certainly a significant step, and it looks like it will play a big role in pushing the UK further towards sustainable, zero-emission transportation. Well, Ethan, it certainly seems like a significant development for electric vehicles and the future of car manufacturing in the UK. Thanks for your analysis. Our final story today is about survival, human resilience, and canine loyalty. Timothy Lindsay Shattuck, a 54-year-old Australian sailor and his trusty canine companion, Bella, were found adrift at sea by a Mexican tuna boat after a three-month ordeal. Grace, can you share more details about this incredible story of survival and camaraderie? Certainly, Connie. It's quite an incredible tale. Shattuck had set off from Mexico's Baja Peninsula to French Polynesia in April. Unfortunately, his catamaran was battered by severe weather, leaving him without any means of communication or cooking. For the three months they were adrift, Shattuck and Bella survived by eating raw fish they caught from the ocean and drinking rainwater. Just imagine the dire conditions and uncertainty they faced each day. What are some of the implications of such an ordeal? Connie, the implications can be multifold. Their particular survival techniques are an extraordinary testament to the human instinct for survival. More importantly, this experience echoes the relevance of adequate emergency preparedness when embarking on such dangerous voyages, and even the importance of companion animals in fostering hope in such circumstances. Indeed, Grace. And this remarkable survival story had a rather serendipitous ending, didn't it? Yes, Connie, it did. The Mexican tuna boat, Maria Delia, spotted Shaddock's catamaran from their helicopter when they were roughly 1,200 miles from the nearest land. This brought an end to his grueling ordeal, giving a much-needed surge of hope to Shaddock, who'd been longing for human contact. Truly fascinating. It must have been a massive relief. Let's talk about the crew of the tuna boat. How did they respond to this shocking discovery? The crew of the tuna boat genuinely turned out to be their saviors, Connie. As soon as they discovered Shattuck and Bella, they provided them with immediate medical attention, food, and hydration. Now, Grace, weren't there some peculiar circumstances concerning the boat that affected the rescue? Yes, you're spot on, Connie. The fishing company's president actually mentioned that this might have been the boat's final trip, as they're modernizing their fleet. It reminds us that industries such as fishing are constantly in transition. That's a rather intriguing aspect to this story. How did Shattuck react after his rescue, and how are he and Bella doing now? After the rescue, Shattuck was enormously grateful to the crew and expressed his deep thanks to the fishing company. Shattuck plans to return to Australia soon to reunite with his family and friends. As for Bella, Shattuck made the hard decision to entrust her care to one of the tuna boat's crew members, making sure she is well taken care of going forward. That's such a heartwarming end to a perilous saga. Grace, thanks for sharing this inspiring story and reminding us about the indomitable spirit of survival and the profound impact of human connection in times of great need. It's been my pleasure, Connie. That's all we have for now. Today's episode was made by Alexander King with GPT-4, GPT-3.5 Turbo, 11 Labs, and the Google Cloud Text-to-Speech API. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow, Alex.